From the Coindesk Global Macro News Desk, this is Borderless, a twice-monthly roundup of the most important stories impacting Bitcoin and the crypto sector around the world. It's created by Coindesk reporters Nick Day, Anna Badakova and Danny Nelson. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Welcome to Borderless. I'm Nick Day. I'm Anna Baidakova. I'm Danny Nelson. On today's show, a crackdown on BitMEX, some developments on the digital euro, decentralized tech trying to solve the internet censorship problem in Belarus, and more. Last week, two U.S. agencies brought charges against BitMEX, one of the world's largest crypto derivatives trading platforms. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, a prosecutor, claimed that the exchange and its owners CEO Arthur Hayes, CTO Samuel Reed, Ben Dello, and Gregory Dwyer violated the Bank Secrecy Act by not conducting any know-your-customer procedures, while the Commodity Futures Trading Commission alleged that BitMEX allowed U.S. customers to trade on this platform, despite the fact that the startup hadn't registered as an exchange with the regulatory agency. The charges are both criminal and civil, and the SDNY announced that while it had arrested one of Hayes' colleagues, Hayes himself remains at large. As far as I can remember, BitMEX has always been positioning itself as a non-U.S. company, right? And like it was beyond the reach of the U.S. regulators. But what went wrong this time? So according to the charging document, BitMEX had a huge number of U.S. customers, despite the fact that it claimed to be operating overseas. And furthermore, the SDNY, one of the New York financial crimes prosecutors, basically claimed that BitMEX customers in the U.S. were able to trade with potentially even sanctioned entities or individuals, such as, for example, traders in Iran. But I wonder how did they find out that there were so many U.S. customers, if, if we know that? I, I think that it was really a known secret. Everyone kind of understood that people were using BitMEX in the U.S. I don't know how they got a hold of it, the actual numbers or proved it definitively, but Uh, I think more more or less everyone understood that BitMEX had a big audience in the U.S. as one of the largest crypto derivatives exchanges. And for that matter, I think that the BitMEX uh, leadership knew it as well when they they took the exchange overseas. And I think they went to the Seychelles. They definitely went uh, abroad to, to set up shot, hoping to avoid U.S. regulators. And they probably did understand that the risk of running this exchange and the, the steps that they were taking to make sure that U.S. customers weren't trading, just telling people not to use the platform certainly isn't enough when it comes to the CFTC and the Bank Secrecy Act. Right. It's like everybody suspected that. But what I'm, I'm just curious, like if we know how exactly they were able to prove there were that many U.S. customers. I remember there was a separate court case involving the early BitMEX investor and Arthur Hayes. And I think the plaintiff, the early BitMEX investor, was trying to prove that BitMEX is actually doing business in the U.S. So I wonder if these cases are any, in any way connected, related to each other. Well, there was a story about the early BitMEX investor who sued Arthur Hayes. And uh, he was trying to prove that BitMEX is actually in the jurisdiction of the U.S. court because it's doing business in the U.S. and d- different kind of um, arguments and proofs came into play. So I wonder if, if that affected 
this another court case in any way? I think it may be too early to tell. So I'm looking at the PACER file. That's the public filing uh, that the CFTC and SDNY put into the federal legal court system. So all the documents are accessible once they put them into PACER. Uh, there's not a lot there right now. This case is kind of very in the early stages. I imagine we'll get more information as it proceeds, but right now it just seems too early to tell. It's very possible that they're looking at the same information. It's very possible that the CFTC or SDNY has their own information. We do know that BitMEX didn't really mandate Know Your Customer procedures until April of this year. And the CFTC has defined like, the relevant period as from the last couple of years. So they're not just looking at what's going on right now. They're saying that you know somewhere between, what was it, 2014, and the present, U.S. customers were able to trade on the platform. If you know BitMEX only implemented KYC six years into that period, then they probably have something. I think what's really more interesting to me is the implications this has for other exchanges that might have once operated in the U.S. or provided services to the U.S. and now no longer do. There are you know a couple of big ones that do that. Right. So I'm super curious to see what kind of proof they used. Because, I mean, I probably every single global exchange is looking at this case now and like, okay, what, what they found, can they find this about us, you know? And if I have to play like BitMEX was not able to do regulatory arbitrage as good as everybody thought they did, like who could? Uh, what I'm really looking forward to is if this goes to court. I think that's going to be a long way off because some of the key players here, Arthur Hayes and some of his associates, are still at large. They're fugitives from justice. But uh, I think it's Samuel Reed, the CTO and one of the co-founders, he's in custody already. He was arrested right, with, right away. They unsealed these charges, the, the indictment, right as they arrested him in Massachusetts last week. And perhaps that case will move a little bit faster um, than the cases against Arthur Hayes and the other two. But if it, if it does go to trial, and I believe that BitMEX's lawyers will attempt to go in that direction unless they get a, a nice settlement, a nice guilty plea, then we're going to see all the information that the CFTC has against these guys and maybe get a better understanding of what these uh, exchanges are up against. Okay, now an out of context, out of the blue comment. You can get arrested, like you can get in jail for serving the U.S. customers. Let that sink in. That's the whole point of what the SDNY is doing, is that they're alleging criminal charges, or alleging a violation of the Bank Secrecy Act, which is, for better or worse, a criminal charge. And I think they're saying that there's a potential sentence of around 10 years for the violation. Um, that's probably not what we're going to see. My guess is it'll depend on the actual facts and circumstances. Plus, there are many, many, many counts, I think, of the violation. But yeah, it's a criminal thing. And so, I mean, that's what I mean by it. it'll, you know, this is kind of, BitMEX is going to be a kind of example, um, poster child, you know, take your term that you prefer for how other exchanges are going to behave. This isn't going to be the last time we see this happen. In other parts of the world, uh, we've got governments that are really thinking about how to integrate digital currency into their societies instead of slapping down on it like we see in the U.S. all too often. In the EU, they, they've just come out with their latest and longest report 
so far on the much-hyped digital euro. Uh, and in this report, which doesn't actually make any decisions about going forward with the project, the central bankers over at the ECB say that it's still very important to think about what a digital euro would look like in a future where it must come about. The decision, I believe, is expected to come in the middle of 2021, but until then, they're still thinking about what features a digital euro might want to have. For example, they're requiring already that the digital euro has cash-like features. That means make it accessible to uh, people across the board, even have it uh, maintain offline capabilities, widespread acceptance, and all these like obvious features of cash that we don't even think about just because it's so uh, natural when we're using it. Uh, also, what interests me is that they really wanted to have strong European branding, I guess, just like how EU notes, uh, how Euro notes have figureheads on them and uh, pieces of architecture that remind you of Europe. I guess they might want to have something similar for a digital Euro. But with uh, digital currency, I think one of the biggest questions and most important questions when it comes to cash in digital currency is how to protect users' privacy. Is it even possible to uh, protect privacy and have a digitally native currency? And the short answer is probably not. The EU says full anonymity may have to be ruled out from a digital euro just in case the money launderers and terrorist financiers get any ideas. And I think it's worth noting the money launderers and the terrorist financiers always seem to be the target of these types of they always seem to carry the blame for when people crack down on this type of thing. But uh, the report says that instead of having across the board privacy, as you might have with cash, they might want to implement more limited levels of privacy. For example, if you're conducting low level level transactions offline, perhaps your identity and the transactions could be shielded. Whereas with uh, bigger transactions, they really do want to know who you are to make sure you're not a money launderer or terrorist financier. Right. So we don't, we don't actually know anything, um, any details about maybe the uh, European Union authorities themselves don't know any details of this future digital euro project so far. But uh, we kind of can um, safely assume that there will be some KYC AML procedures, maybe some onboarding procedures to make sure that the issuer knows who they're selling these stablecoins to. So I'm curious, what will be the implications for non-European users who might want to buy some digital euros? Because right now in the countries around US, uh, in the Eastern Europe, for example, like in Russia, in Belarus, in Ukraine, euro, just like the US dollar, is um, quite a popular savings tool. And you can buy it basically very easily. But if there is an onboarding process with KYC, like will non-European IDs work for that and how will that work? I think this is really interesting how the onboarding process will, will be arranged. Yeah, I'm not even sure that they've come to an answer on that themselves. I know that, well, in the report, they actually talk about how do we make sure that we are implementing proper KYC. And one of the questions they're thinking about is, do we allow non-European Union citizens access to this platform? And the, although they haven't come to a final decision on that yet, it seems like they're very concerned with making sure that this is only usable for EU citizens, kind of like how the Disney dollars are only usable in Disney World. 
uh, of course, uh, the digital euro would be much more useful than a Disney dollar. But, you know, still making sure that it's a closed system seems to be very important in their uh, KYC considerations. An internal closed system seems kind of, it seems interesting. I mean, I, I understand why you might want that. It makes sense to streamline internal operations. And I'm pretty sure the report said that it's going to be complementing the existing euro. It's not going to outright replace it. So people who are not EU residents would still be able to conduct transactions and whatnot uh, using the regular euro. So it sounds like it's going to be streamlining some transactions, some processes, but not, you know, upending everything, which makes sense to me. You you don't have to deal with the KYC headache for everybody on Earth, but you can still reap the benefits of having a digital euro this way. Honestly, it doesn't make sense for me at all. Because for systems like that, which initially were designed to kind of compete with uh, Libra-like private currencies, the goal was, wait, I mean, it's like... Well, that's not, that's not, that's not what they're doing here. They're, so they're, they're not trying to create a digital asset. They're not trying to create a you know, distributed ledger technology-based system. They're just trying to create something that they can use. And I mean, you could say, argue that they are competing with Libra, but you know, if the EU doesn't want Libra to exist, they're doing a fairly decent job of making sure that of that already. Libra hasn't launched. It's supposed to have launched, I believe, in June. And we're now in October. So I think we know that government regulators don't want Libra to launch, but I think we have to separate, you know, not wanting it to launch from what they're doing here. Yeah, well, I wasn't, I wasn't actually talking about Libra. Uh, I, was, uh, I was trying to talk about the idea that, you know, the goal of any asset, like of, of any digital currency or any currency at large, probably, ultimately is the prevalence, you know, the, the widespread popularity. And uh, like, this is why China is so actively advancing with the digital yuan, because China wants people to use that digital currency all around the world so that maybe people don't even choose to use the US dollar and they become, you know, all this money gets into the Chinese economy. So when you make a fenced off, like closed system in which like you have like this playground of only the kids that you know well and no other new players can come in, like what, why, I, I, I I don't really understand the advantage of that. Well, another thing that they're talking about here is uh, disincentivizing the use of, the, of any digital euro as an investment tool. So they're very much concerned with making sure this isn't some sort of speculative asset. And then returning to that uh, idea of you know, what's spur- sparking this and are they trying to compete with Libra? I don't actually think that they're competing with Libra as much as we think, uh, think they might be. I think that they're actually competing with their own citizens uh, growing distaste of normal cash. In some countries, you see that the use of cash is falling drastically, and the use of uh, apps and uh, digital banking services are on the rise. And so uh, the ECB is thinking about how do we make sure that in the coming years, we have a way of making sure that our monetary systems are safe and secure, and that our payment systems are keeping up with the times. All I'm trying to say, a universally accepted digital token and another Venmo are just two, two very separate things and, and two very 
separate success stories. Uh, and one is uh, just so much bigger than the other. But let's see, let's see what Europe comes up with actually in the future. It's, it's really interesting to see what they come to in the end. And moving a little bit even more eastward to Belarus, which is still protesting. And it's actually the nation has been protesting against its president, Alexander Lukashenko, since August. And actually, many people now don't admit that he is a real president. So people has been coming on the streets in crowds since August. And since then, the government has been trying to limit access to the information. There have been multiple internet outages, websites of the local media and political movements have been blocked. And now the news publications are trying to fight back with the technology. There is a startup based in San Francisco, founded by the former BitTorrent director of engineering, Stanislav Shalunov. And the startup is called Klostra. And these guys developed a technology called New Node. And it's basically kind of a protocol of flexible connectivity when mobile devices can connect to each other via either internet or Bluetooth or Wi-Fi hotspot. And they can also store fragments of information and share them with each other like the torrent clients do. Anyways, the trick is that if a device has been able to access some information, uh, some websites, and some files, and it's connected to other devices, they can share the, the lacking fragments, you know, like I have these bits of data, you have some other bits of data we can share between each other. And we can use whatever means of communications possible. If there is no mobile network, maybe we can connect via Bluetooth or via our Wi-Fi hotspots. And it can work in the situation uh, where there is some connectivity, but the internet connectivity is seriously damaged. Like it won't work in a situation of a complete internet shutdown, but it will help if some devices are better connected to various sources. Uh, maybe they are using VPNs and others are not. Or maybe some devices are located close to the state border and they can connect to a foreign internet network while the national authorities are seriously limiting the capacity of the national network. So it's not a like full and ultimate solution for the internet censorship problem, but it looks like at least a very interesting step in that direction. So I'm, I'm curious, what do you guys think? So this is a way for uh, people in Belarus to get around the government's attempts to limit their internet uh, connectivity? Yes. The idea is that it can help them access the media websites because it's the media publications who are using this technology. They are building it into their mobile apps to stay available when the authorities are trying to block them. I mean, it's definitely not a new idea. The idea of using mesh network type tools or file sharing services to get around internet restrictions is one that's been going around for a very long time. I think, and please check me on this, this might be one of the first instances where I've heard it being used to specifically aid in protests against a what appears to be an authoritarian attempted dictatorship. As you said, this happened in the wake of President Lukashenko's controversial and questionable re-election. So um, I guess my big question is really, you know, how much success has NewNode had? How many people are using it? How widespread is this so far? Well, so it's not like immensely widespread, 
but according to the company itself, they got around 800,000 new users in Belarus since the beginning of the protests. Uh, and before the elections, they had like zero users in Belarus. So there was some good rapid growth in Belarus and uh, it's a largest geographic location, like, like it's the largest user base for Clostra right now for, for new node. They don't disclose the number of their users worldwide. So this technology is kind of, maybe it's in infancy right now. And uh, the, the, there are also no observations or results to see how it really worked. Like, did it, did it help in the real critical situations? People keep watching. Um, I'm really curious to see how it shows itself. And it looks like BitTorrent actually might have a history of being used for protests such as this. I was just doing a quick uh, Google search and I came across um, a news story from 2013 during Egypt's protests. I mean, Egypt has a lot of protests a lot of the time, but uh, these ones in 2013, I remember that was when the government actually tried to shut down the entire country's internet services. I believe that they, they were successful in basically cutting off the pipeline, but it looks like some people were using BitTorrent to live stream the protests in a way that made it more difficult for the authorities to take down. So there is, it looks like a precedent for these peer-to-peer -peer services, these file sharing services being used to challenge government censorship. And this seems like a much more robust platform for doing it. So I'm very interested to see, I guess, how many people adopt this kind of technology and if it's able to actually make a difference in getting people around government censorship. Right, but can you actually use torrents for live streaming? I didn't even know that. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I guess you should always trust everything you read online. Um, but I, I don't know the, the details of, of really how BitTorrent work. I do not understand, like you were explaining earlier, you know, in this idea, lots of different users of the network have access to the files and are all sharing it, making it easier for people to download it without having to rely on a central source. So I don't know if that would, if how exactly that would work for a stream. Yeah, I think it'll depend on the technology stack. I mean, whether or not the torrent itself. There were actually other experiments regarding exactly the, the type of connection and the protocols of connection. The same team that created new node actually, before that created FireChat. That was a messenger that used Bluetooth connection, and it was uh, really popular during the protest in Hong Kong in 2014. But, but then it turned out that everything said on FireChat becomes public because there was no viable, I, I think there was no feasible way to encrypt communications on this kind of, um, on this kind of app. You know, it, it wasn't very safe for protesters to coordinate that publicly, they could call attention of the police to themselves. But, but still, like, that, that was another interesting experiment, like how you can use alternative ways of connection to, you know, to, to stay in touch with other people while your government might not want you to be connected and get information and coordinate with, with others. In other headlines, Venezuela launched an Ethereum-based blockchain stock exchange the U.S. Office of Foreign Assets Control and Financial Crimes Enforcement Network issued twin advisories warning ransomware victims against paying crypto ransoms because they might violate sanctions law. And the U.K. Financial Conduct Authority 
has finalized a ban on crypto derivatives and crypto-based exchange traded notes. Okay, so now you will be able to get in jail also for allowing people to trade derivatives in the UK, not just in America. Yay! Well, I don't know if that's a criminal thing. It does seem that a uh, criminal thing would be actually paying, uh, you're paying the ransomware if that's a violation of sanctions law, which I think is a little bit ridiculous, telling people you can't, you're not allowed to pay the ransomware because you might be funding Iran. I guess that's what they're infer. that's the inference here. But that's a little bit ridiculous. I mean, ransomware just took down, I think, like the U.S.'s largest health system. So... Office of Foreign Assets Control and the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network are parts of the U.S. Uh, Treasury Department. Basically, Treasury is kind of putting, you know, ransomware victims into a very weird position where, you know, I mean, just I think last week we had reports that someone died because the hospital they were supposed to go to was offline due to ransomware. So now hospitals have to weigh, you know, OK, can we serve patients or are we completely down? An interesting uh, point about that, uh, the person who died, it's a, it's a tragedy. And it appears that the uh, ransomware hackers didn't actually want to be hitting a hospital or they didn't really know what they were doing because when the authorities reached out to them, the German, it was, this was in Germany, I believe, and said, hey, we need access, somebody just died. They actually relented, the hackers did, and they gave back access to the network. Um, which, I mean, a little bit too, too little too late. The person was already dead because of it. But it makes, people, it makes you think who these uh, hackers really are. It's kind of an impossible choice, right? You either just lose all your data, whatever the, the hackers got from you, or you like, get in serious trouble with the U.S. government. It sounds like an impossible choice for any big company that has large amounts of data and has this risk of losing it. Yeah, it's not a great situation. I guess the real lesson there is always have backups. What if your backups also get encrypted? Then too bad. So sad. Good luck. Well, everybody look after your OPSEC, please. Don't be a victim of hackers. Don't violate sanctions, probably. And never trade crypto derivatives. Amen. That's our show. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Borderless, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network and released on the new Coindesk Reports podcast feed. By subscribing to one feed with your favorite player, you'll get free access to seven new shows from the editorial team at Coindesk, each focused on a particular niche, perspective, or ongoing discussion within the world of cryptocurrency. This episode featured Nick Day, Anna Batakova, and Danny Nelson, with editing and announcing by Lila Ledesma. Today's show is produced by Adam B. Levine, with music by Cody Martin. Did you enjoy the show? We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service, and talk to us directly via email at podcastsacoindesk.com. And stay tuned for Money Reimagined tomorrow on Friday. Money is changing, but where do we go from here? Join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum in episode two of this new series where they dig deeply into the significance and future of decentralized identity with big thinker Brian Bellendorf of the Linux Foundation. Thanks for listening.